0: if you have a copy of uh, your scriptures that's our text for this morning john chapter 20 verses 19 uh, through 23 as we kick off a brand new series called restored and we're simply just going to finish out the gospel of john and i'll tell you why that title is what it is in just a second well a father and a son uh, were walking together in the woods they were just enjoying a a leisurely afternoon stroll uh, on some different trails And the father and the son, they stumbled upon this tree that had fallen uh, across their path. This log had just blocked their path. And the son looks up to the father and he cheekily says, he's like, dad, you think I can move it? You think I can move this log? And the dad looked at the son and the dad said, well, son, if you use all of your strength. So the son gets down with the log and he starts getting a good angle and a good grip on it and he begins to... Use everything he has to move it to the right or to the left or just roll it or push it out of the way. Nothing happens. So he adjusts his uh, his his grip. He he squats down this time and he's gonna move this log out of the way. And he's gritting and he's bearing down. He and he just can't seem to get this log to move. And a moment of desperation and let's be honest, a little bit of defeat. The son looks up to the father and he says, "Dad, I thought you said." that you thought I could move this log? And the father looks at the son and he says, I did say that, son. I said, if you used all of your strength and you never asked me for help. You see, we live in a culture that prides itself on self-empowerment, of you do you, of if you dig deep enough and you soul search enough and you find it within yourself, You can achieve whatever you wish. You can do and you can reach your dreams. But the actual message of the gospel of why Jesus had to come, why we celebrated Easter last Sunday is the fact that that couldn't be further from the truth. That we can't do it on our own. We can't get into heaven on our own. No good works that we could do could get us into the afterlife to spend eternity with God forever. But even more than that, the effects of Easter, the effects of the resurrection of what Christ came to do is our day-to-day life is not meant to be lived on our own. And to actually live the Christian life that we are called to live, we cannot do this on our own. Paul, writing to his young protege in ministry, Timothy, tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15 the reason why Christ came. And he says this, he says, the, the saying is trustworthy. And then it went away. And deserving of full acceptance. Good thing I had it memorized, right? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You see, Paul tells Timothy, he says, this is a trustworthy saying, and it deserves your full acceptance. Everything you are, Timothy, live this out, believe this, put this into practice in your life right now, and don't forget it that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. So you can't do that on your own. No way, no how. And he says this, he says, "I am the foremost." This word foremost literally means best or first place. So Paul is telling us that if there were a sinning game that he would not have taken home a participation trophy, but rather first prize that he was the winner or the loser, depending on how you want to look at that, if sinning is the game, right? But he goes on and he says this, he says, more than even that, very next verse, he says this, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, in me, he says, as the foremost, as the worst of the worst sinner or best of the best, depending on how you look at it, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That the whole point, Paul says, to Timothy of the resurrection, the effect of it is not just for one day, that in his life, on the day-to-day, that Christ Jesus would be put on display. That every single day in his life, that he would be a shining example of the patience of his loving God. But why did his loving God come? Well, he came to save sinners. That was his task. So how does Easter, or the resurrection, if you will, live out and flesh out in our lives on a day-to-day basis? Well, that's what this whole series is about. This series called Restored, walking through the final two chapters of John's gospel, we're gonna look at four different stories and accounts of Jesus coming to those disciples, to his early followers of Jesus. We're going to simply just walk through these four accounts of Jesus going back to his disciples. Now, I will remind you in this timeline of the story what that exactly was, that Jesus is going to go back to the guys who talked a big talk, guys who said things like, I'll never leave you. Others might, but I won't. I'll never forsake you. I'll give my life before I do that. And then in his deepest hour of need, that Christ needed them the most, if you will, on the cross, in his betrayal, his trial, his uh, beating, all those moments, they abandoned him. They abandoned him. They left him to figure it out by himself. And those are the same people that Christ is going back to. And this is so, so pivotal in this moment that they are in this state of abandon and they didn't do what they wanted to do, right? There's been many moments in my life where I can say that's true as well, right? Where there's things I wish I would have done and wished which responded differently. And what, what washes over us in that moment is nothing short of fear, regret, shame. It's probably exactly how the disciples were feeling, and yet Jesus comes to them. And let's look at how he comes to them on that Easter evening, John 20, 19. On the evening of that day, that day being the resurrection. So earlier that morning, he reveals himself to Mary. We, we, we looked at that last week. But now on the evening, he's going to his disciples. He's going to meet with them the first day of the week. And this is how John paints the scene. The doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, "'Peace be with you.'" That word that Jesus announces, we've talked about it many times in John's gospel, he likes that word, and that word simply means wholeness, wholeness be with you. Imagine the scene, these guys huddled up in a locked house, windows locked, doors locked, they are not letting anybody see in and they do not want anybody in, nor are they going out. They're locked up for fear of the Jews. Let's put that statement into context, if you will. For the past three years, these disciples have been following around this Jewish teacher named Jesus, who has been ruffling some feathers. He's been stirring the pot, if you will, saying things that really tick some people off, doing other things that really tick some off. And the Jewish leadership, their desire is to put him to death. In fact, in John chapter 11 and 12, we look at these verses, these key verses, where it says the Jewish leadership from that day forward planned how they would execute him. They put this plan in place. And for for their perspective, from these guys huddled up in this room, from their perspective, they had accomplished their task because Jesus was gone. He was dead for them. And so what other response do we have? They're coming for us next. They're terrified they're huddled up in this locked house and then john wants us to know that he has no clue how jesus showed up in the middle of them but he just showed up like maybe he passed through the roof maybe he passed through a wall but no door was opened and there he was he revealed himself he showed up and he says peace this does not look like a peaceful scene in my mind that I'm paying, I'm painting like these guys huddled up. There may be some of them are underneath the beds, like they're terrified, their teeth are chattering. They're like covers over their head, like the boogeyman's about to get them. I'm like they are not, this is not like peace be with you in this happy, hopeful moment. No, they are utterly scared. And yet Jesus passes through a wall and says, peace be with you. This word peace is what Paul uses with the other word grace. Grace and peace be with you. Almost every New Testament letter starts with these two words, wholeness. And as the word uh, grace means, unmerited favor. Wholeness and unmerited favor. That's what I want over your life. And Christ comes back to those disciples, those same disciples that abandon him and issues to them peace. And where does he show up in the middle of their fear? in the middle of their abandoning him, in the middle of all their wrongdoings. John says among them, which that word literally means right in the middle. So where does Christ come to us, his followers, in the middle of our shame, our fear, our regret, our failure, our insecurity? He's not far, he's not distant, he's right among. He's right there, he's coming to them. And he doesn't just come to them one time and give them one shot and say, hey, follow me. He's coming again, even in the midst of where they said, we'll do whatever it takes to follow you. And then they didn't. And then he comes back to them again and shows up right among them, right among them. That is the location of where Jesus is. He's coming back to them yet again, calling them to faithful obedience yet again. So it doesn't matter where you're at in your journey. Today, God wants you to know, yet again, he's calling you to faithful obedience. But how does he actually supply that? Like, how does that actually work in my life? Because I've tried my willpower over and over and over again, and it fails me. I do what I don't want to do. I I don't do what I want to do. And it's like all these different things. How do I live that faithful Christian life? How can I actually live a restored, or as Christ says, peace life, a whole life? wholesome life let's continue on verse 20 it says this and when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord the first thing Jesus needs them to see is he he declares peace but then he reveals himself he shows himself to him and how does Christ come to them the first thing we need to recognize is this is Christ fulfilling one of his promises that he said to them on the night that he would be betrayed. In John fourteen eighteen, he tells his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And there he is. He's, he's coming back to them. But how does he come to them? This is what I want you to see and I want you to notice. How does he come to them? Well, he comes to them and he feels it prevalent to make sure they know that he has a flesh and blood body. That he shows them his hands and his side. He feels this as super relevant. That Christ does not come in a orb or a ball of matter or of spirit and a mixed up messiness. No, no. He comes just as he left them. He comes in a body. In a body with Scars. In a body that is scarred because it's not ashamed of the price that it had to pay to buy us back or to, as Paul says, save us. That Christ could have came and revealed himself any way that he saw fit. He could have had fully healed pieces of his body where there was no scarring. We probably all have scars from a burn or a cut that we've had at one point in our life, and every scar has a story. Every scar has a story of, you could tell, hey, that one time that I made a mistake and I shouldn't have been driving that fooler too fast and then it flew me off and I got this big old gash on my knee. That's a story for another time though. But Christ in the story of his scars is a story of my redemption, of your redemption and he's not ashamed of it. You see, there's pockets of our life where we're ashamed of our wounds, we're ashamed of our scars, but these scars on Christ's body, he wants to keep because he knows that these scars are the story of your salvation, my salvation. So his body matters just like your body matters. And Christ in this moment, we know that he has a resurrected body, but he's also a picture of what we will be like one day because god does a miracle with every death and it's nothing not a difference of christ's death either but he does a miracle what that miracle is is he splits the soul from the body he takes it out because that body is lifeless that body is dead it once was someone but now they're no longer there where does the soul go where religions all over the world and all of time they debate this matter But Christ, when he gave up his spirit in John 19, it says, it is finished and into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. So God the Father separates the the spirit of Jesus from the body of Jesus and it goes to be with him. But then he does a second miracle where Jesus in his resurrection, his spirit is rejoined with his body as one. And Paul calls him the first fruits of the resurrection because he will never die again. And his resurrected body and his glorified body is exactly as it is now with those scars of the evidence of our healing. And he is a first fruits because we will have resurrected bodies that we won't be just spirit one day. We'll die from this earth. We'll be separated from our bodies. But we'll be rejoined with maybe this body, maybe a different body, but our bodies matter. And we see this in Christ's own resurrection. And the second promise that Christ fulfills in this, in his coming is notice this from Jesus' speech to his disciples in John 16, that he promised not only to come to them, but also he promised that their grief would be turned to joy. John sixteen twenty, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy and that's exactly how they respond to the resurrected Jesus as he reveals himself the glorified Jesus they, he reveals himself and their sorrow it says when they saw him they were glad or they had joy so the second promise is fulfilled And as they notice who he is, as they see his scars and his hands and his side, they know that it's Jesus? Jesus speaks to them yet again. Verse 21 of John 20. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You see, God the Father has sent Jesus and as the sent one, he has been the obedient and dependent son. That he has been Sanctified, He's been sealed. He's had the Holy Spirit poured out out on him without any limit. And he has been faithful with every step along the way. He has done ministry that God the Father has sent him to do. He's done the task. As Paul says, he has saved us. He has made it available for us to be restored in right relationship with God. And very soon, he will send the advocate or the helper, the, the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will empower and indwell upon those first followers of Jesus and every followers of Jesus after who turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus. But what they need to know is they are being set apart to do ministry in the way in which Jesus did ministry. That those early disciples like us don't get to just go where we wanna go, do what we wanna do, live how we wanna live. No, that we live, if we live spirit-empowered lives, we live them as Christ lived them that to be a Jesus follower is not just to believe the right things, but it's also to shape our lives around how Christ shaped his life. And that's to grow in our dependence upon God. And this is very opposite from our world. You see, because in our world, if you are a parent and you have a relationship with your children, I'm a parent, I have three children, they're young now, but my goal is to help and nurture them to grow in their independence. One day, my prayer and hope is they do not live under my roof. One day, my prayer and hope is they make their own money, buy their own food, mess up their own house, and then I'm going to come to their house and just throw things on the floor and walk out too. Like, But the goal is, is that one day that they are independent from me and we can see each other on the weekends and say, see you next week. But the goal of a Jesus follower to have a relationship to God the Son and God the Father is to not grow in our independence, but it's rather to grow in our dependence. And that's opposite of our world today. That the more and more that you grow in your depth of maturity as a follower of Jesus, the more and more you realize how broken, flawed, and if you didn't have the Holy Spirit, if you didn't have a relationship with God the Father, that you would be lost and without hope. It's not to grow in your independence of you will reach this knowledge status that one day you're like, okay, I got this. Like I've read, you know, the Bible. I've read that book. Yeah. Let's put that on the shelf with the other ones. No, that's not how it works. That's not how the life of a Jesus follower works. You actually grow in your dependence because if you were growing in your independence, you would be growing in the same way Adam and Eve did. That's called sin. If we grow in our independence from God, that was what the first sin was. That Adam and Eve in the garden said, no God, I don't need you. No God, I don't need to listen to you. I got me, I'll figure out my life. And that's what it means to actually be a sinner, not a a follower of Jesus. That a follower of Jesus says, I need you, I'm dependent. I'm not independent, I'm dependent upon you. And the more we grow to look like Jesus, Jesus, he never stepped off path from the plan that the father laid out never stepped up. He was the dependent and obedient son. And for us to grow in the likeness of Jesus is to follow that path. That's why Jesus says, as the father sent me, I'm sending you. The way that I've done life and ministry is the way I'm calling you to do life and ministry. You don't get to pick your own path. You don't get to pick your own thing. Like, no, you follow me. This is how we do this. And then he does this. He gets a little weird. Let's be honest. In verse 22, he says this. And then he said this, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I just imagine one of those extra commercials in this where it's like, and it's like, you know, the wind coming out. That's probably not how it happened, though. You know, they didn't have any toothpaste back then. So Jesus' breath, maybe it sank a little. Maybe he had fish that night before, okay? But in this, there's two debated, like, what's going on here in Jesus' breathing this out, is is this John's version of them actually receiving the Holy Spirit? Well, this wouldn't make any sense because the Pentecost doesn't happen until 50 days post-resurrection. So John, we know he's an artist, we know he doesn't really care about timelines, but he's not this far off. Like, what is happening here in this of Jesus doing this physical act of breathing on them? Well, most scholars would say there's two recall texts and one foreshadowing. The two recalls is, if you remember the creation account in Genesis chapter two, it says that God breathed into the nostrils of Adam, making him a living being. And then Ezekiel 37, where the valley of dry bones, God breathed and then flesh and blood and covered up these bones and made new life where there was no life. And so Jesus is showing himself to be God in this moment of breathing on them And he's saying, I'm exactly who I said I was. This breath, my breath, is your sustaining life. My breath will bring life where there was deadness. My breath, my Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, is who you need in this. And so he's probably foreshadowing what will happen in Acts 2. It's one of these moments where it'll click with them when they get it, when they receive the Holy Spirit, like, oh, this is what he was doing. But right now, it's just awkward. Like in this dinner time, it's like, what is that? Why did he just breathe on us? But that's what's happening. He sees, oh, that's what he was doing in this moment. Oh, that makes sense. It's it's like what Cassius was talking about, like hindsight 2020 theology. When we look back on our life, we see the faithfulness of God. We're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense now. And that's the way Jesus is working in this moment. But then in his commissioning, in his commissioning to them, this is the work at which he is calling them towards look at this verse 23 if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them if you withhold forgiveness from any it is withheld you see jesus in the verse prior is reminding them and calling them that he will send this comforter he will send this advocate he will send this helper the holy spirit but what, just, what we just read, this last sentence, if you will, of Jesus' encounter with the disciples in this room, it sounds a little clunky, it's a little weird. Like, what exactly is happening? Is Jesus really giving his first followers the authority to forgive or not forgive their fellow humans when they seek forgiveness? No, that's not at all what's happening here. You see, what's what's happening in this text, we have to remember, ask the question like, who grants forgiveness? That's the question. In all of the, the biblical scriptures, who grants forgiveness? God alone. All these times throughout the gospel, when Jesus declares the authority to forgive sins and grant forgiveness, the Pharisees are ticked. He says, they say over and over again, God alone can do this. And in that, Jesus is either being God or being blasphemous. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, he proves to be God. He breathes on them to prove. He says, I am God. I will send the comforter. And so what Christ is doing here is he's saying, you can only call out the evidence at which you see, but you don't have the authority to provide the actual power to do that thing because I've done that thing. And in this, in this confusing sentence, what's happening here is, is Christ is reminding us of where the power is. Reminding us is as followers of Jesus, as the church, we are to continue on the mission he's already started. To share the gospel, to point to the power, to point to him. And when we see evidence in someone's life as followers of Jesus sharing the gospel and when they turn from their sins and they trust in Jesus, you can say, you are forgiven. You know why? Because he is risen. And the power has been purchased for you to actually experience forgiveness in your life. And some of us, we carry around guilt, shame, regret, fear, all these things, living like the cross never actually happened. But the reality of what Christ is proclaiming in this is he said, the forgiveness that I went to the cross for, done. So if you look at my cross, if you trust in me, you can say with confidence, if anyone seeks forgiveness in my name, you can say forgiven. But, comma, if they don't seek it, don't give false hope. That's what the other side of that comma is saying. It's like, withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. It's not to say that we can be arrogant and saying we're more holy than someone else. But what it is saying is if someone is not looking to Jesus and they still are seeking to find fulfillment and forgiveness in their life and they're not seeking Jesus, we don't give them false hope as followers of Jesus. That we don't have the authority to be like, oh yeah, you're good. I'm sure it'll work out in the end. Oh, you're pursuing other avenues to find God great. No, but followers of Jesus saying that our God has risen from the grave and he is the only hope for salvation. He is the only way to actually be restored in a right relationship with God the Father. And we can say that in sincerity and love and hope. But as followers of Jesus, that we also should be living out that calling of ministry, that we should be following in those footsteps of Jesus, because as the father has sent Jesus, he sent those first disciples. And as he sent those first disciples, he sends us daily. So the question that I wanna ask you is, are you sent? And what I mean by that is every day when you wake up, is this, do you see it as another opportunity to share the hope that exists in the cross? Or are you still living like the cross hasn't happened? Meaning you're controlled by fear. You're like the disciples huddled up in the house with the doors locked, the windows locked. You're you're just for fear of the blank fill in your life. For fear of my past. For fear of my inadequacies. For fear of shame. For fear of rejection for fear of status, for fear of approval. Doors locked, I'm not coming out. And the message that Jesus gave to them is what I believe he wants to give to us. He walks in a room that doesn't have any peace and he says, peace, wholeness. And for the same guys who abandoned him, the same guys who wished they would have responded differently, the same guys who said, but Jesus, don't you realize we abandoned you? He says, as the Father sent me, you're sent. Yeah, you're inadequate. Yeah, you've messed up. Yeah, you've got a track record of sin a mile long. Yeah, you failed, but it's not about you. He says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. I'm I have purchased forgiveness for you. Look at these scars. I'm not ashamed of them. Don't hold on to that shame. Don't hold on to that regret, that failure, that insecurity. It's been paid for. You don't live like they never happened, but you can live in a state of forgiveness in the midst of the fact that that has happened and you've looked to Jesus. Jesus. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting, but it does mean moving forward because you know the price has been paid. And Christ says peace two times. Sends them and says, now go and do the work because you, like Paul says, I am evidence of the perfect patience of a loving God. I am evidence. My life is evidence of what Christ has, has done in me and can do in you. So right now, what I wanna do is I simply wanna, as we've looked at the scriptures, wanna lead us in a time of prayer for you individually. So if you would, would you get in a prayer posture that you're comfortable with? If it's your eyes closed, your hands open, if it's kneeling in the aisle, I want your full attention and your focus just however you need to do that. I'm simply gonna ask you three questions that I want you to ask of the Holy Spirit if you're a follower of Jesus in this room right now. First thing I want you to ask the Holy Spirit is, would you reveal to me areas of my life that I'm allowing to be controlled by things other than you? If it's fear, guilt, shame, regret, inadequacies, whatever it is, would you pray that? Would you say, Holy Spirit, Reveal to me areas of my life that I'm not living controlled by you. I believe there's two types of people that are in, our, in this room and some of us are both types. One type of person needs to, to grow in their knowledge and, and commissioning of God and others need to heal. And my prayer right now over this room is, Holy Spirit, would you heal and remind and direct our attention, our focus to Jesus and his his scars that are no longer open wounds because he's paid that price and he's overcome death, hell, and the grave? Would you bind our minds and our thoughts and hold back the enemy's lies from our minds of us? our guilt, our shame, and our past mistakes, would you hold them back? And Holy Spirit, bring to the forefront of our mind peace. The second thing that I want you to pray right now is would you just simply pray that the Holy Spirit would grant you the ability to receive that peace that Jesus came to give, that wholeness that Jesus came to give. Holy Spirit, would you help all of us receive your peace? Followers of Jesus, would you help us receive the peace that God the son came to grant us available and if you're not a follower of Jesus I want to make you aware that there is peace to be had in Jesus and we'd love to chat with you after the service if you don't know what that peace looks like but the last question that I want to ask and then I'm done is would you ask the Holy Spirit that simple question of where are you sending me next? It's an audacious question. If you're bold enough to pray that, would you pray at God, where are you sending me? But don't pray it if you're not ready. If you're not ready to do what God's asking you to do, it may be as simple as serving in a ministry that already fits your life rhythm. It may be flipping your life rhythm upside down. It may be the Holy Spirit calling you to move or change a career path but or maybe making sacrifices so that you can be more present right where you're at underneath your feet those three simple prayers God reveal to me areas of my life that I'm not allowing to be controlled by God the Holy Spirit God, over this next week, over our body, would you reveal to them areas of their life individually where they're not living spirit-filled lives, not living in the present reality of what your resurrection offers us to be restored, not only for one day, but right now. Holy Spirit, would you allow us to drop the shame, the guilt, the regret of our past and be able to pick up the peace that Jesus offers us in his name because of what he's done. And Holy Spirit, where are you sending me? Where's the son sending me to proclaim his excellencies? Where are you sending me next? And my prayer over my life and over this body is, would we be obedient people to go where you're sending us to go. In Jesus' name, amen.